this collective whole, this grouping of good things that all of God's people are growing in simultaneously all at the same time. And so those walking in step with the Spirit are maturing and growing in these things. So Paul didn't give a, a menu for us to simply pick the things that we're you know, more passionate about and you know, leave behind some of the things that we're just not all that interested in. No, these are all things that kind of God's people are kind of growing in over time all at the same time. All right? But now that that's kind of firmly in the back of our mind, we began looking at each of these in, uh, individual fruit in turn. We began, began uh, picking them apart, holding them up, and trying to define them more carefully, more succinctly. And so uh, we gave ourselves four rules for our effort. And so if you, in case you weren't here, um, four rules to help us understand the fruit in the way that probably they ought to be understood without veering off into a weird place. And, and so the first rule that we gave ourselves is that the fruit are nothing more than the outworking of God's own good character in the life of his people. That they're nothing more than the outworking of God's good character in the life of his people. In other words, God doesn't give arbitrary commands, period. He doesn't say, do this just because I think it'll be funny. He doesn't call us to things that he isn't already in perfection or things that he has already done on our behalf, all right? And so his commands are a model are for us to model what he has already done. And so growing in the fruit of the Spirit is less about becoming a better person and much, much, much more about becoming more like him, more like God. And in some ways, that's really cool, right? And in some other ways, that's not so cool. <laughs> in fact, it's really, really scary, because I know me. How about you? If the call is for us to look like him, I'm in a lot of trouble. And I don't have the power to get there. At least of my own accord. Just in case you haven't managed to figure it out by looking at me yet, I'll go ahead and fess up. I, I don't have the strength to pull that off. And uh, it might be awkward, but I'll just go ahead and say it. I'm looking at you. Neither do you. You, you. you don't got it. You don't have enough. If the call is for us to look more and more like him, we're in, we're in trouble. And that sets us up for rule number two. The fruit don't belong to us. They're the fruit of the Spirit. They're his fruit. I, I don't have a shot at getting there by my own ability, but I haven't been called to get there by my own ability. I'm not the one producing the growth. If, the, the gro if I'm going to grow in these things, it will only ever be because the Spirit produced these things in me, right? I can't white-knuckle my way into godliness. I can't achieve spiritual maturity, but that's never been asked of me. Not what I've been called to. Thanks be to God, he has not only declared me holy, the Bible also teaches that he is actively making me holy. He will get me there. So does that, does that just mean that I sit around and do nothing? I kind of like the idea of sitting around and doing nothing. That's in me. And rule number three, we're called to cultivate the growth. Paul tells the Galatians that those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those, in other words, those who are walking in step with the Spirit are daily choosing to, to kill off the old self and instead lean into what the Spirit is teaching them to love and value more. 
And that's a daily activity in us. Maturity does not happen overnight. It's never happened overnight. But eventually, God's people can look back and see the trend, right? There's growth there. The growth is slow, but it's there. But growth isn't the only thing good to come out of the fruit. It's certainly important, but it's not the only good thing because fruit end up being a blessing to others as well. Ends up being a blessing to others as well. So rule number four for us was that there is a community dynamic always found in these fruit. Those, those in the church will be blessed and those outside of the church will be blessed by this. And so we've got our four rules. We've, we've looked at a couple of fruits of our love and joy. So what's next up on the docket? Yeah, now you got a recall, right? Love, joy, peace, peace. What, what is peace? Well, we've been starting with the dictionary definition, right? So what does the mighty Google machine say? Freedom from disturbance, semicolon, tranquility. That's a fun word. Tranquility. Who don't want tranquility? Anybody fighting against tranquility? It's a definition that probably, I'm just going to guess, squares pretty well with what you've experienced in the world. If, like if we were to, you know, duck out of here and walk down the street and ask every single person we came across, hey, what is peace? We'd probably get something along the lines of that answer, right? They, w- they would come up with some kind of answer like that. The absence of conflict. It's probably the way that most people would define it. If we ask enough people, we'd probably get a few, you know, kind of alternative answers in there. Some of us, some, some people would want to, like, tell us a story from the 60s, all right? And some people would uh, use the definition of peace as some kind of springboard to talk about politics. And because we live in a world that, you know, people like to dabble in religious things they think they control, we'd probably get some New Age philosophy in there somehow. But by and large, by and large, the most dominant answer we were going to get if we were to ask the man on the street, what is peace, it followed a pretty straight line, the absence of the bad stuff, right? The absence of the bad stuff, the absence of war, the absence of fighting, the absence of strife, and that answer may even come packaged in a Beatles lyric. So the last couple of weeks, last couple of weeks, we've, we've had to be very, very careful to distinguish between how our culture defines our word of the week and how the Bible would define our word for the, the week. And, and so, love and joy, our last two words, they, they end up on the far end of the misdefining spectrum. They're all the way over there to the edge. Peace, though, peace, though, it's a lot closer to the middle, I think. Um, I'd make the argument that while it's not necessarily misusing the word, that most people if they were to give a quick-fire definition, only mean half of what the Bible means when it uses the word peace. Only half. In other words, in the Bible, peace is not simply the absence of the bad stuff. It is also, at the very same time, the active presence of the good stuff. It's not just the absence of the bad stuff. It's also the active presence of the good stuff. The biblical idea of peace is not a neutral word. Not at all a neutral word, Uh, but we've got to look at our text to get there. So Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. So what's the context we're wading into here? Well, Philippians is one of Paul's 
prison epistles, we call it, uh, meaning we're pretty confident that he wrote it while under house arrest in the city of Rome. So he's in prison sort of uh, when he's writing this letter. And compared to, compared to his other letters to the churches, Philippians is pretty tame. Right? There's not a lot to, to sneeze at there. Right? And so things are going relatively well in Philippi. And, and for a lot of reasons, that's, that's a really great thing. Philippi is a relatively healthy church, at least compared to places like Corinth and Galatia, which were absolute train wrecks. Right? So Philippians, the letter to Philippians, the Philippian church, it's, it's kind of a calm, tame letter. And so there's a lot of things to, to point to and, and to celebrate. And Paul does exactly that in a couple of places throughout a very, very short letter. So why, why did Paul write a letter to him? Isn't he normally like addressing problems when he's writing people's stuff? Uh, well, is, I mean, is it just to celebrate the good things? Is, is it just a kind, warm-hearted letter? No. No, Paul's got an issue to address. So he, he writes the letter because relatively well can sometimes be incredibly dangerous. Sometimes be incredibly dangerous. While there are no major fires for Paul to put out in the Philippian church, that does not mean that the church at Philippi can just coast along. There is an issue there. Sitting for a while in the relatively well category it will often lead a church into a false sense of security. Um, start to get lazy over what's, what's important, and they'll usually end up developing a healthy bit of arrogance. Because, I mean, look at all the great stuff going on around here. God must be happy with us. Must be really pleased. Because, I mean, look at that over there. It's awesome. Look how great we are. And so Paul's letter, I think, if I were to give a synopsis to the book of, of Philippians. Paul's letter is mostly about encouraging the Philippian church to keep their foot on the gas. To keep their foot on the gas. In, in the middle of chapter 3, Paul tells them to follow his example and quote, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, we're, we're chasing after something much more valuable and much more eternal here than just good enough. Than just relatively well can't settle for relatively well because eternity is on the line. And so Paul comes back to that theme a few times in this very short letter. One of those times is with the very first words of chapter 4. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. And then in verse 2, Paul introduces the closest thing that Philippi really has to a real problem. Let's look at that. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Verse 3, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. All right, so there, there aren't many major problems, at least none that we're aware of in the, the, the church at Philippi, but we do have record of kind of a disagreement, I guess, that's going on between a couple of ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, all right? Paul knows these women. Uh, he mentions them, uh, that, he, that he worked alongside them before, that, that, they, that likely would have been when Paul was living in Philippi, helping to start the church in Philippi, though it's possible that, I guess, maybe uh, these women could have worked with Paul in another location and then somehow managed to find their way to Philippi. But we know that, that Paul traveled around a lot, so it's more likely that they were there and then Paul moved off. And so Paul knows these women. And whatever the case, Paul gets wind that they are arguing about something. And apparently, apparently, 
apparently it's a big enough deal that it makes its way all the way to Paul several months later, and Paul has time to write a letter back to them, assuming that the problem's still there. All right, so it's not just some petty little argument. These ladies are feuding. Did I just lose my mic? I guess so. All right. These ladies are feuding about something. There's something deep going on here. And so Paul entreats them, we're told, which, let's be honest, that's a word that needs to make a comeback, right? He entreats them. It's a good word. He earnestly pleads with them to come to agreement, begs them. And what is his reasoning? It's not, it's not that one lady is wrong and the other one is right. In fact, Paul doesn't even address the issue. doesn't seem to care about it other than the fact that they're arguing about something they need to stop arguing. He doesn't try to adjudicate the actual issue here. And it's not his, his reasoning for calling them to, to, to let go of the argument. It's not that you know, like these ladies' strife and animosity towards each other are causing a big distraction, although I'm pretty sure there's a lot of that going on too. No. What does he ground his reasoning in at the end of verse 3? whose names are in the book of life. See, for Paul, for Paul, this argument needs to die, and it needs to die right now, because Euodia and Syntyche are failing to see and understand the long-term reality that they're on the same team. They're members of the same kingdom family, not by their own doing, not by anything they've accumulated or earned or carved out for themselves, but by the good grace and pleasure of God who chose to save them. This is God's call, not their call. And so for them to dig in their heels and hang on to a feud, what they're doing in that moment is they are clinging to an identity other than what God has graciously called them to. Declared them to be. They're saying that, now I'd rather be the one who's known as right. They'd rather be known as the one who won the argument than be known as the one whom God has joyfully chosen to save. And so Paul entreats them. He pleads with them and calls in some nameless third-party true companion to help them work through the issue. And then, and then Paul gives them something, something better to chase after. Something much better to chase out. Something not only to distract them from the nonsense, but also to aim them at what they've actually been called to. Look at verse 4. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So this is a verse of the Bible that gets grossly misunderstood, in my opinion. It's like, how in the world can you rejoice all the time? Don't you know that the world stinks sometimes? Right? We, we all there on that one? Well, it's not all sunshine and roses, I guess. I mean, does this, this Paul fellow have any idea what it's like to live in a world full of brokenness and sin? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he does. Um, in fact, as we've already mentioned, Paul was under house arrest in Rome when he, when he wrote this letter. And so he's currently living out the, the brokenness. But this also isn't Paul's first prison rodeo. All right? This is not the first time he's been in prison, right? Uh, and he's also been in prison for a while. If you've never read the book of Acts, his pathway to getting to Roman house arrest wasn't exactly a vacation. It's not exactly a fun moment for him. Uh, he's been a prisoner by, uh, for years by this point, two years in Caesarea, and uh, depending on when you date the letter of Philippians, up to two years in Rome. 
And so somewhere between three and four years, he's been in prison for this one offense, right? And so, yes, the, the one who was mocked for his faith and beaten for his faith, yes, the one who had been chased out of town and shipwrecked and then ultimately in prison because, you know, he had the audacity to tell people about Jesus, yes, he fully understands what it's like to live in a broken world. Yes. Don't worry, Paul can check off the box. He understands what real pain is. Okay, 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 okay. But still, like, it's kind of tone deaf, right? I mean, it's kind of tone deaf. Like, how in the world could he write something like rejoice always if he knows what it's like to live in the real world? You're all faithful church attenders. I'm sure you've never forgotten a single thing I've ever preached, right? Ever? Just file it away, pull it out in the moment you need to. There you go. That's the answer we all need. All right. You remember last week... Last week we talked about joy, right? We said that joy is much more than just some amplified version of happiness, at least for the Christian. It's, it's certainly not something that you have to put on a brave face and fake for a while until you make it, right? Now, for the Christian, joy is a hope-filled, expectant posture in the face of our circumstances. Why? Because God is trustworthy. That's why. Because God is trustworthy, and because he has promised us infinitely more than our petty little circumstances could ever threaten to take away from us. Our circumstances don't have any hope of robbing us of joy, because our circumstances aren't strong enough to affect what God is hanging on to. That's what we talked about with joy. Rejoicing is not tone deaf, and it does not ignore the painful circumstances. It is the natural reaction of our circumstances when they are seen for what they truly are, insufficient to rob us of what we actually value, what we actually look forward to. So Paul, here in Philippians, says pretty much the exact same thing as Peter did last week. It's almost, just, that, just saying, it's almost... Like, despite having different human authors, the Bible still has one single author with one single message. Paul calls them to practice joy by using it to celebrate, rejoice all the time. That's not all he calls them to. Look at verse 5. He says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand. So if you're reading a different English translation than the ESV this morning, you'll likely have a different vocabulary word there for reasonableness. The, the New American Standard use, uh, renders that phrase as gentle spirit. Uh, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, goes with graciousness. And if you're more of a King James fan, it, it likes the word moderation. Let your moderation be known to everyone. So why, why all the different vocabulary words? Well, it's because there's not really a singular English word that fully encapsulates everything that Paul's trying to say in this Greek phrase. Right? Um, the idea in the Greek is the posture of being willing to overlook an offense. The posture of being willing to overlook an offense against you. The offense matters. It stings. It's painful. But you're going to take the high road. You're going to be the big boy, and you're not going to let it affect you. That's the tone that, that Paul's aiming at here in, in, in this word. And so each of these options kind of makes sense, and each of these options also creates problems if we use modern definitions of our words. So you, you can see why there's a little bit of uh, hesitancy to go here, go there. And so each of these translation committees are really just trying to use the best word they can think of to try to, try to phrase what Paul's going after here, and they just land in different places. And so Paul, he, he tells this church, and, and he tells these, these two ladies in the public reading of this letter that 
we need to be reasonable here. We need to be reasonable here. We need to let things slide that don't actually matter. Now, I've been in church leadership just long enough to know that when someone is angry about an issue, the next question they're going to ask is, who gets to decide what matters? Right? Is that the question you would, you would have? It's a question I've heard before. Who gets to decide what matters? Well, let, me, let me give you our measuring stick. The things that matter are the things that will still matter when Jesus shows back up. Does that make sense? The things that matter are the things that will still matter when Jesus walks in the room. He's near. He's, he's getting nearer every day. We probably, I don't know, ought to do the business he's given us to do. Right? If something is, is distracting us from that business, stealing our attention away from that business, I, just, I don't know, I just don't think it's a wise thing to be hanging on to that thing. Probably smarter to lay it down and go focus on some other stuff for a while. We're on the clock right now. <laughs> Can you imagine the scenario? Your boss leaves you a task at work, and then he goes off for a while, and then he comes back, and you hadn't done that thing, but you try to convince him, oh, well, there's this other really important thing that I just thought was more valuable. <laughs> How's that going to go for you? <laughs> Not, not a good run. <laughs> Let me know how that conversation goes. I'd love to hear the story. <laughs> Paul tells them, tells them that the Lord is near. There's a job to do and time is running out. So let's be reasonable here. Let's be reasonable here. Let's have a, a thick skin because there's far more important things on the line here than just getting our way on something that won't matter one bit when Jesus shows back up. But not only is the church at Philippi called to practice their rejoicing and their reasonableness, this eternal finish line affects a couple of other things as well. Look at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So in the same way, in the same vein as rejoice always, and back in verse 4, people sometimes take offense to this command too. It's the same argument. I don't know if it's been your experience, but it's definitely been my experience that absolutely no one, I mean absolutely no one, in the middle of being anxious, likes being told that you don't need to be anxious right now. You ever been in that scenario? This isn't as big a deal as you think it is. No. <laughs> no one in the middle of being anxious, likes being told that they don't need to be anxious right now. It's not usually received well. And so we're in the same place as we were back in verse 4, right? Is Paul just being a jerk here? Is he just being some dense guy who doesn't understand how the world actually works and he's not sensitive to people's needs? Does he understand what true anxiety even is? Yeah, he does. In fact, the very reason he's under house arrest in Rome right now is because he's waiting to figure out if they're going to execute him. He is waiting for word on whether or not he's going to die. It's not exactly a calming thing to be stuck dwelling on. How would you fare in that environment? So Paul's command here, it's not, I repeat, it is not coming from somebody who doesn't get it. It's coming from somebody who probably gets it better than we do. It's also the exact same command that Jesus has already given to his followers in Matthew 6. 
you've never read that before. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And so back in Matthew, Jesus grounds he doesn't ground the command to not be anxious in your circumstances. He doesn't ground it in your ability to you know, dig deep and you know, pull it off despite how nervous you are and your worry. No, Jesus tells us not to be anxious because the Father is in charge. And he wants good for you. You can let go of the anxiety because God is faithful and God is good. And he has never been outpaced by your worries. Ever. So Paul says pretty much the exact same thing that Jesus says. It's almost, just an idea, it's almost like despite having different human authors, the Bible still has one author with one single message. <laughs> see a theme? <laughs> Hope we see a theme. Paul tells him to take the requests to God. Ask him for what you need. Do it with thanksgiving, he says. You don't have to sit there and be anxious about that thing. You could instead, I don't know, just trust God with it. You give it to him as if he's already in charge. Does that mean that, does that, mean that when I finally give it to him, he'll make that problem go away? Does that mean when I finally give him that thing I'm worried about that he's going to give me everything I asked for? You're smart. I think he sometimes does take the problem away. I think he sometimes does give us the things we ask for, but I think more often than that, he does something far better. And this is where we finally get to look at our fruit for the day, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul says that when we take our anxiety-producing requests to God, we are given not everything we ask for, but peace from Him in return. We give Him our things that we're worried about, and He gives us His peace. And that peace is bigger and deeper and sweeter than we can even begin to make sense of. It outpaces the categories that we have available to try to put it in and make sense of it and explain it away. Okay, but like, like how in the world is that better than the thing that we asked for? Right? Like, that's a fair question. God, I want this thing. This is causing worry in me. Don't worry, I got, I'll give you peace. No, I want you to get rid of the thing. Anybody else there? I'm there. I'll be honest. I'd rather God get rid of the thing. Why doesn't God just give us that? How is this, how is this peace better? A couple of reasons. For one, his peace is the product of his presence. His peace is the product of his presence. It is the result of his being near to us, with us, in us, for us. The reason why his peace surpasses all understanding is because he surpasses all understanding. 
the light of his glory and grace drown out the anxiety. They have no place to remain. But that's not the only reason. We, we said it earlier. The second reason is that peace is not merely the absence of the bad stuff. It's also the active presence of the good stuff. So what, is, what does Paul say that God's peace does at the end of verse 7? That it will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. My favorite uh, uh, commentary on Philippians explains it this way. It's the ESV expository commentary. It says, God's peace is the opposite of anxiety. The peace the world offers depends upon peaceful circumstances, which must constantly be preserved and guarded from countless dangers. But God's peace is different. Worldly peace must be guarded. God's peace guards us. I like that. God's peace guards us. Peace is not merely the absence of the bad stuff. It is also the active presence of the good stuff, namely the loving presence of God himself working on our behalf. So just like last week with joy, peace as biblically defined, it is never dependent upon our circumstances. It's never dependent upon our circumstances. It is the good gift of God that we rest in despite our circumstances, in the face of our circumstances. It is the confident expectations that things will ultimately be okay, even as those things are blowing up in our face. Not, not because those things don't affect us. Because God's presence is better than those things. We, we don't have to worry because God is in control. And if he takes away the problem, great. If he chooses not to take away the problem, we'll be okay because we still get him. We still get him. And if we see him correctly, he will be enough. And the most loving thing I could say right now is that if he doesn't feel like enough, it's because you don't see him correctly. If we see him correctly he will be enough so so how, how in the world do we treat this idea of peace now that we properly defined peace in the biblical sense how do we treat it as a fruit of the spirit like where do we go with this well we have our four rules right that's rule number one so this is who god is before it's something he calls us to grow in right so so how do we see god walk in and experience perfect peace well this is pretty much the entire story of the passion narrative. The, the closer you get to the cross in the gospel accounts, the more we see Jesus lean in to this very idea of peace. In other words, the louder and more violent his enemies got, the more Jesus seems to speak and act as though he will be just fine because he trusts the, what the Father is doing. You never walk through that story. It starts in the garden, right? And what do we see Jesus doing? Agonizing over what's to come as, as he fully understands what it means to bear the wrath of God for sin. Like Jesus is kind of freaking out about it. But the deeper and deeper we get into the story, the more Jesus just kind of is like, whatever, I got this. It's because God's got this. And the deeper and deeper into the story you get, the, the, more, the more he trusts that God is good, the more he trusts that the Father knows exactly what he's doing and everything will be just fine. Pain is real. So is the peace. And so 
You end up having Jesus on the cross quoting Psalm 22 where the righteous one is vindicated and celebrated forever by the coming generation. He's in a good place. It's not because the cross wasn't really painful. It's because peace is really real. I'm really glad that Jesus has perfect peace because I don't see a lot of perfect peace in me. Anybody else doing well on that one? As the worry ramps up, is it matched in equal measure by the peace? I don't have that one. I struggle with that one. And so rule number two is good news for me because I'm not called to earn that peace. I'm not called to white knuckle my way into that peace. The Spirit is the one who produces the fruit in me. He is the one who will ultimately get me there. It may take the rest of my life, man. It really may. It really may. But he's good. He's good. And he is pleased to work in me. And he will get me there. But we don't just sit around and do nothing. Rule number three, we're called to cultivate the growth, and that's where verse eight and nine come in. Paul says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Verse nine, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So there's that word practice again, right? We keep hearing that throughout this series. When, when the choice is in front of us, and we can either choose what comes natural to us, or we can choose in that moment to lean into what the Spirit is teaching us to love and value more. And so in that moment, we take another step towards a functional righteousness that matches a little more closely to our already declared righteousness, right? We, we take another step. And then we take another step, and then we take another step, and yeah, it's going to take a really long time, but eventually we can look backwards and see the trend. We can see the growth. We grow in peace by practicing peace. Is that hard? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, it really is. But the result is always bigger and deeper and sweeter than we first hoped. God's good like that. He's good like that. What about rule number four, though? Where's the community dynamic to this? What's in that very last word in verse nine? That word you, it's plural. Paul says that when we grow in these things by chasing after these things, the peace of God will be with us. Not just, not just you, with us. And it's not that really, it's really not that hard to believe, right? Otherworldly peace is kind of contagious. It's kind of really contagious. It spreads to the Jesus followers around you as you are growing, as they are growing in the very same things. And so the church is strengthened by witnessing peace in the real world. It's not just the church. There's an evangelistic element to this as well, right? Just like last week with joy, otherworldly peace is going to stand out. You ever watched it stand out? Pretty obviously stands out. It's going to produce questions in people. And if you're ready to give an answer, I promise you God will use it. God will use it. We offer a better story than what the world tries to offer, period. Peace that surpasses all understanding is going to raise some eyebrows, I promise you. So lean in and use it. 
What do we do with this today? We got some ideas for the future. What can we do with this today? How do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, man, I, I think he's showing us that his presence is better than the stuff we often want from him. Infinitely better, even. Now, if we're all smart people, we would all immediately you know, ascribe to that understanding and agree to that on an intellectual level, but it's also been my experience that I often struggle to really cling to that on a functional level. Maybe you're better than me on that. I've got a long, long string of stories where I've chased after and tried my absolute best to hang on to other things that I think will give me more comfort and joy, more comfort and safety. The reality is that those things have never actually brought me peace. In fact, um, even by its lesser worldly definition, that, that, that peace that I'm hoping to get out of that thing, if I get it for a little while, it never lasts very long, or at least not any longer than I'm able to hang on to that thing, which, let's be honest, is not very long. And so ironically, that thing always ends up giving me anxiety instead. It does the opposite of what I hoped. The peace that God gives is of a different kind altogether. One, because it's bigger and deeper and sweeter, but two, because he's the one who hangs on to it. He's the one who hangs on to it. And if it's in God's hands, that's where real rest can be found. And so for the follower of Jesus, our response this morning probably needs to take the shape of, you know, like actually trusting him. Not just in mental assent. Not just in intellectual, yeah, I got you's functionally letting go of the things that we're trying to hang on to because we think that that's going to keep us safe. That's going to be what actually satisfies us. We cling to him instead. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time we set aside to put action to whatever God might be stirring in your heart this morning. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? How, how can you respond to God's word? Well, you do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that the Bible teaches that for those who have not been reconciled to God, yet there is no peace. That's a scary place to be. That by default, we are all separated relationally from God for, for, uh, because of our sin, that we are owed the right and just punishment for our sin. The Bible uses a couple words to describe it, but one of those words is death. Not a fun word. There is no peace for those who are far from him. But the Bible also teaches that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that the eternal Son of God, Jesus, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that I'm not capable of living, and he died on a cross and as a substitute in my place to make payment for my sin. And then he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And so all those who call on him as Savior and Lord are reconciled to him, and we have perfect peace. It starts with peace from the Father and flows out to everything else. You can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus in saving faith. I'd love, love to be helpful to you. We're going to sing. I'll be down there if you want to 
talk to somebody about it. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe you need to respond by formally joining our church family. Or maybe it's by uh, being obedient to Jesus in baptism. Or maybe, maybe God is calling you to take this gospel of peace to a, pe- to a people that haven't heard it yet. You get to be a proclaimer of peace to those who have no peace. I'd love to set you up for success in that. But however, God's word is calling you to respond this morning. Let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Philippians. Thank you for being peace in perfection. I fight against the good things you want for me too often. I cling to lesser securities. I place my hope in things I think will satisfy and give me the joy I so desperately chase after. But you've called me to cast my cares on you. And so God, we, we live in a really broken world full of things that cause strife and stress and worry. Yet you are faithful and true. And you have never failed. And you may not give me everything I ask for, but you give me yourself. And and that sounds like a lot better. I'd rather have that. Father, for those in here who know you, would you... I don't know, maybe, maybe rip our hands away from the lesser things we try to cling to. Place them firmly on you. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you open our eyes to see and ears to hear that you are a better offer than those lesser things. Call men and women into your kingdom this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Respond.